0: Charles Tabb, the Mildred Van Voorhis-Jones Chair in Law at the University of Illinois, and the ABI Resident Scholar. On today's podcast, we will be discussing the special problems involved in dealing with environmental obligations and bankruptcy, an issue that has been in the national spotlight in recent weeks due to the nightmarish spill and contamination in West Virginia and the ensuing bankruptcy of Freedom Industries. On January 9th, Close to 10,000 gallons of crude MCMH, a chemical used to remove impurities from coal, spilled from a one-inch hole in a Freedom-owned tank into the Elk River, fouling the water supply of much of the state of West Virginia. Hundreds of thousands of West Virginians were not able to use the water for drinking, cooking, or even to do their laundry. Freedom's potential liability for this spill is almost unimaginable a scant eight days later, Freedom File Chapter 11. We are pleased to be joined today by Jim Redwine, who is a frequent contributor to the ABI's Toxins R Us column and who just published another article in the ABI Journal in January on the intersection between fracking environmental and bankruptcy issues. Jim served as the Vice President Environmental of Motors Liquidation Company, formerly known of course as General Motors Corporation, and was responsible for all environmental functions in the largest industrial bankruptcy in United States history, including formulating and managing environmental strategy in the case, regulatory compliance at over 100 sites, and environmental claims management and administration. He achieved the largest environmental trust settlement in U.S. history, funded with over $770 million in record time. Mr. Redwine received the ABA's 2011 Excellence in Environmental Stewardship Award for his work on the motor's liquidation bankruptcy. Jim has over 30 years of experience as an environmental corporate and real estate attorney, consultant, and executive, including establishing and operating remediation custodial trusts and bankruptcy proceedings. Jim received his Juris Doctor from Vanderbilt University School of Law, and his Bachelor of Arts Magna Cum Laude from Harvard University. Jim, let's start by looking a little more closely at the already infamous Freedom Industries case. First, what happened? How did such an environmental disaster occur?
1: Well, first off, I want to thank you, uh, both uh, Mr. Tab uh, and ABI, for the opportunity to uh, discuss the, uh, the Freedom Industries and
0: uh, uh, other uh,
1: related issues um and recent developments in the environmental bankruptcy uh, intersections. A very fascinating area of the law, uh, one that allows for a great deal of uh, creativity uh, here. Uh, in terms of the Freedom Industries case, um, it's still uh, early in the case, uh, but here's what things have happened uh, based upon uh, these reports as well as filings of the case. On January 9th of 2014, um, sometime around 8 to 15 in the morning, uh, odor complaints started to be received by local residents. Uh, by mid-morning, uh, the local residents noticed a liquor smell. Uh, by 10.30 a.m., uh, there was some uh, notice of a leak from a tank uh, into a secondary containment area. Um, uh, there's a certain amount of uh, uncertainty as to when exactly by whom the spill was discovered, uh, but uh, apparently the local water company and regulatory authorities were apparently notified uh, sometime around noon on the night. Uh, the leak appeared, uh, excuse me, occurred from Freedom Industries facility in the so-called Chemical Valley on the Elk River in West Virginia. Uh, it's, uh, that facility is located approximately one mile upstream from the West Virginia American Water Company's uh, intake uh, and uh, distribution uh, water distribution center. Uh, the spill was initially reported to be of a chemical called uh, MCHM. Um, for those who uh, want to practice their uh, Latin or chemical. Uh, Pronunciation uh, skills, uh, methyl cyclohexane methyl, of alcohol that's used to remove impurities uh, in coal to be used for coking purposes uh, for the production of, uh, of metals. Uh, and subsequently, um, quite some time later, a second chemical uh, was apparently uh, determined to be involved in the spill. So, not clear exactly how much is spilled. Um, some reports say approximately 700 gallons. Apparently, there was a um, a four-foot-wide stream of this chemical flowing out of the tank into the ground uh, through the uh, uh, joints in the secondary containment facility were promptly leaked into the groundwater and into the Elk River. Uh, the water company's systems couldn't remove all the contaminants, uh, and uh, later that same day, uh, the local residents were advised not to drink, cook, bathe, or wash uh, in the water. Some 300,000 people were apparently affected. Uh, 120 of them at least sought uh, medical treatment, uh, advisories um, uh, with respect to the water were subsequently lifted, uh, but there continues to be uh, controversy about whether the uh, uh, the licorice odors had returned uh, and uh, thus prompted concern over the safety of local water supplies. Freedom Industries then filed for bankruptcy, overwhelmed by its liabilities on January 17th uh, of this year. Uh, how did it all happen? Um, it's uh, not really clear yet. Um, we seem to know several factors were at work. Uh, the chemical, um, MCHM, was apparently not required to be uh, investigated or registered under the Toxic Substance Control Act, uh, but it does seem to be an ir- irritant and could be harmful if ingested. Uh, and because the, uh, uh, the chemical was, uh, was not um, listed as hazardous, the, uh, the tank was approximately really last inspected by regulators some 20 years ago. Uh, And uh, there does seem to have been some recognition uh, prior to the bankruptcy case that the uh, the bank didn't have issues. Uh, There was a a million-dollar reserve uh, set aside in the sale documents uh, between uh, uh, Freedom Industries prior and current owners. Uh, And uh, those fixes apparently uh, never happened before the bankruptcy case and before the spill. So that's how we live at this point.
0: That's what a nightmare. So, Jim, tell us, if there were no bankruptcy option, then what would happen in a case like this? What would happen to Freedom Industries? What I'm thinking is, I mean, what would be the kinds of actions that the state and federal governments uh, likely may have taken uh, against freedom under the environmental laws uh, in response to this?
1: I think freedom seems to be fairly typical in this respect. Um, Essentially, there are three or four steps uh, that the state and federal governments uh, can take in such a case. Uh, First off is to stop the spill. Uh, Second, to restore or provide uh, safe water, Uh, clean up the spill, and then finally uh, fine or otherwise deal with the uh, the polluter.
0: And do you think the government would have pursued all these uh, courses of action then?
1: Uh, They seem to have gotten to um, at least the first three uh, Uh uh, uh, so far. Um, Ultimate regulatory uh, sanctions um, were not... um, uh, we're not uh, started uh, before the uh, before the bankruptcy uh, actually commenced. Uh, so there was definitely uh, requirements uh, on, uh, imposed on the Pluvier by order to remove the contaminants from the, the various tanks. Uh, the government itself stepped in uh, and provided uh, safe drinking water. Uh, so uh, uh, it's uh, it, it's in process. I guess is the best way to say it.
0: Is it likely that anyone uh, potentially would have faced criminal prosecution? arising out of this? Uh,
1: it's uh, it's definitely a possibility. Uh, it's always possible possibility in a case of this kind. Um, it's a uh, <clears throat> uh, potential defendants in that kind of action could include the debtor itself, its directors, officers, and employees. Uh, there was a recent ownership change uh, involving Freedom Ministries um, that could uh, militate against some of the uh, liability, criminal liability imposed upon the uh, the most recent set of directors and officers, um, but um, continuing operators, continuing employees, or plant operators um, you know, could potentially become criminally liable. And,
0: and the bankruptcy filing would not stop that, would it?
1: Uh, it uh, does not seem to have. The 11 U.S.C. Uh, 362B1 uh, says that the automatic state doesn't apply to the commencement or continuation of the criminal action uh, against the debtor. Um, there's probably no exceptions to that, but they don't seem likely to apply. Uh, and uh, uh, 362b1 also seems to uh, apply only uh, to the debtor, so it, it would um, apply to not debtors like the directors, of officers, and employees.
0: So, Jim, absent a bankrupt pardon me, absent a bankruptcy filing uh, in a case like this—what do you think would have been the plight of Freedom's other creditors? That is, would they have lost out? Uh, to the government. In thinking about that, would it make a difference whether they were secured or unsecured creditors and why?
1: Uh, I think the, uh, the best way to um, answer that uh, question uh, is to say that um, it depends on the context. Um, outside of bankruptcy, a uh, company regulated uh, is not surprisingly required to comply with all laws. Uh, this uh, involves not only just the obligation to refrain from conduct that violates the laws, but also to spend money required to comply including to ameliorate conditions resulting from a violation of the law. Uh, a regulated entity is also required to pay fines and penalties arising from any violation of the law. Um, there's no limitation outside of bankruptcy other than that imposed by the substantive law itself, I suppose, or as uh, suppose potentially a constitutional principle uh, that the uh, Amount the company can be required to spend uh, or comply with the law, or the amount of fines and penalties uh, they can be required to pay. So there would essentially be uh, no limit um, other than that imposed by substantive law or constitutional principle outside of bankruptcy um, uh, And uh, it uh, frankly wouldn't have mattered uh, outside of bankruptcy if the creditors involved were secured or unsecured. Uh, any interest they may have had um, in the debtor would be subject to the same rules. Uh, of course, you know, a company that has a credit or similar uh, agreement um, you know, with one or more secured creditors uh, would likely be subject to covenants that might allow the creditor to declare default and allow the uh, creditor to exercise remedies, uh, including stopping of cash advances and up to including uh, foreclosure in the case of a violation of law.
0: Given the, uh, the background you've just described, I guess the first question that really comes to mind is what was it that freedom was hoping to accomplish? by filing a Chapter 11 bankruptcy case?
1: Well, since uh, none of us were in uh, Peter's corporate boardroom, uh, we can't know for sure. But Always we disappointing, right? I know, I know. The, uh, the fly on the wall, um, or perhaps these days the NSA, but uh, that's for another day. Uh,
0: but if we were to speculate. If,
1: if we were to speculate, all right. Well, it seems to me that the principal motivation uh, would be to uh, preserve the company's uh, assets and its ability to operate. Uh, in the face of these uh, potentially crippling compliance uh, costs, the fines and penalties, as well as the, the costs of defending and, and paying judgments and the lawsuits by the, uh, the numerous uh, parties and uh, entities claiming injuries uh, from the water.
0: Okay. Reading all the press, I mean, this this case has been all over the national media, and honestly, the knee-jerk reaction has has been almost to the sense of well. Can you believe this, you know, a company fouls the waters of an entire state and then seeks safe haven in bankruptcy. You know, what an outrage. Can 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 this what is this country coming to? Well, is that sort of popular layman's view accurate or inaccurate it, thinking about it in a more technical way? I mean, what does filing chapter 11 do for freedom that would not be possible without a bankruptcy filing and Is that an outrageous and horrible thing for them to be doing?
1: Well, you know, on on one level, certainly the popular outrage is is justifiable, you know, that anyone could cause uh, that kind of damage uh, and not have to bear the full consequences of it. You know, it certainly rankles um, the, uh, uh, you know, popular imagination and the news media, uh, as well as all of us. Um, But I think what sometimes um, gets lost in the consideration of these kind of situations uh, is that you know, Bankruptcy filing is really a symptom and a consequence of financial distress. Uh, a company can only satisfy you know, all its obligations uh, to comply with laws, remedy the damages and causes, uh, and so forth, and pay applicable fines and penalties if it has the resources to do so. And that's, that applies whether uh, that company is in or outside of bankruptcy. Um, and uh, I think... Uh, you know, It's not uh, commonly understood that um, a debtor in bankruptcy also has the obligation to comply with all laws pursuant to 28 U.S.C. 959B. Um, there's some controversy about um, how far this rule goes and what it requires, um, and we'll talk more about this later if we have time, but the rule itself stands. Uh, what bankruptcy allows um, in this kind of circumstance uh, is it allows the company in these situations uh, the ability to sort out its affairs in an orderly fashion, without one creditor uh, or another being able to jump uh, the others, uh, and certainly subject to court supervision. Uh, so, uh, uh, Freedom has or had a number of options open to it, uh, including reorganizing, sale of its valuable assets to a, a third company, another company that are able to utilize them uh, in a more uh, uh, compliant fashion, uh, or liquidation. Uh, all these options would allow it to pay compliance costs and pay claimants to the extent that has access to do so, Um, and probably in a more orderly fashion that would prevail outside of bankruptcy.
0: So in a nutshell, it's it's not that freedom is trying to escape its liabilities, its bad actions, and fouling the environment. It's really more about imposing and, and maintaining order for the benefit of all stakeholders and all constituencies. And as you said they're still fully required to comply with the environmental laws, so it's it's really a more orderly and defensible function than might be seen at first blush.
1: Uh, I certainly believe that to be the case.
0: Well, you'd mentioned the uh, possibilities of reorganization and liquidation. Interesting question uh, developing, and uh, there's been some news on that front just just in the last few days in a case like this does it appear that reorganization is in fact going to be a realistic option uh, or does it appear uh, that freedom is going to have to liquidate? Uh, what came up of course um, is the, uh, the lawyers for freedom suggested to the court uh, just on Friday that it may have to wind down. Why is that and what are your thoughts on that?
1: As, as you noted um, within the past three days, um, you know, Freedom's lawyers suggested that it uh, intended to liquidate. Um, it's not clear exactly how this would happen. Whether the case would be converted yet to converted to a Chapter 7 liquidation, as uh, opposed to continuing in, uh, in Chapter 7, but that's to be determined uh, uh, at a later date. Uh, yeah, this decision, you know, the parent decision. Well, it's unfortunate. You know, it's it's not exactly a surprise. Um, Freedom is a relatively small company. Uh, Its annual revenues um, appear to be only in the neighborhood of $31 million, uh, and it it probably couldn't afford, using its own resources, to uh, uh, even the transactional costs uh, required to reorganize. Um, It's possible that uh, the company might, with uh, different backers, um, maybe even some of the claimants themselves, uh, as has happened in a number of uh, other recent environmental bankruptcy cases, uh, to operate the company, uh, and to receive equity interest in it so it could generate um, funds to pay the claims, uh, that would require significant efforts uh, and a degree of cooperation that might be difficult to achieve and uh, at times available to do so. The uh, is not necessarily a foregone conclusion, but it's uh,
0: certainly looking that way. Yeah. Do, do you think, uh, what are the possibilities of uh, freedom being sold uh, free and clear of its environmental obligations? Uh, under a 363 sale? I mean, if they did attempt a 363 sale, I mean, what limitations uh, might might apply? Uh, certainly, it's a very
1: interesting question. Um, and this is one of those uh, aspects of the bankruptcy, the, the complexities of which, um, and the results, uh, may not be fully realized uh, by the public or even by bankruptcy or environmental practitioners who don't specialize in this particular area. Um, First, I think we have to understand what environmental liabilities we're talking about um, and then what parties we're discussing. Uh, And then I suppose even to start that, uh, we should talk very briefly about what uh, a Section 363 sale is, uh, and that is a uh, a sale that is allowed to occur uh, before a plan of reorganization is confirmed by the debtor uh, with all of the procedures and protections uh, that apply in the, the usual case the usual case when assets are sold pursuant to a plan uh so let's um, let's talk about um, a couple of different kinds of liabilities um the first of which being the debtor's obligation to comply with laws including to remediate uh, property if it's contaminated and second for damage uh, such as personal injury and property damage uh, to third-party claimants um, a sale of non-compliant or contaminated property that doesn't relieve a purchaser of obligations to comply with uh, environmental laws Um, Although this issue is sometimes still litigated, um, sometimes even fairly vigorously, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, a bankruptcy doesn't allow uh, or skew the purchaser to comply, um, the purchaser's duties to comply with environmental laws. Uh, For example, in the recent General Motors case, uh, Judge Gerber's opinion uh, explicitly and correctly recognizes that that New GM is responsible for compliance uh, at the facilities that it bought. the U.S. Department of Justice um, even has standard language uh, for use and sale orders in cases uh, in which it is involved. This issue arises uh, so frequently. Uh, the rules are somewhat uh, different when it comes to third-party personal injury and property damage claims. Uh, these are not assumed by the purchaser and remain with and be resolved by the, in the bankruptcy estate. Uh, again, not without controversy. Uh, this rule um, even applies to successor liability claims uh, uh, Judge Gerber's opinion in the GM case, uh, for example, determines the successor liability um, claims are interest uh, in property in, uh, under Section 363, and that a 363 sale is free and clear of such claims. Uh, this seems to uh, follow a more recent trend in some of the cases, including uh, the, the recent TWA case, uh, among others, um, <coughs> uh, that uh, this type of allegation is interest uh, in property, uh, that uh, 363 allows for a free and clear sale-up. Uh, of course, uh, we have to also remember that um, there is a difference between 363, um, which speaks of sales free and clear of interest, uh, and Section 11140c, 1141C of the Bankruptcy Code, uh, which provides that the property dealt with by a plan of reorganization uh, is free and clear of all claims and interests. Uh, so this is... Um, an area that still so that
0: ambiguities in the plan sale context is is not not an issue at all. Whether uh, the interests are also uh, taken free and clear of
1: that is absolutely clear. Claims of interests uh, are provided for dealt with, uh, and sale is free and clear to, to a plan. Uh, when it's just a 363 sale, there is a, a question still being worked out in the courts uh, about whether the. Uh, uh, a claim, uh, what people would otherwise understand as a claim, uh, is actually an interest in that property that, um, pursuant to which um, the property is sold free and clear.
0: But, but clearly, I think you're, you're right that the prevailing trend in the courts, exemplified, as you said, by the General Motors case, by TWA, the, the Leckie case, uh, is, as you described, that 363 would include interest. Well, if you were advising just, just step back a minute. If you were advising a potential purchaser uh, at a 363 sale from a company uh, that had potential environmental liabilities, uh, not, not just freedom, what would kind of issues you'd be worried about? I mean, what would you advise your clients be looking for? What are the major concerns that a potential purchaser would have?
1: Well, recent cases like GM and Tronox, and and more about this later, you know, bring home the point, um, you know, that usual rules regarding environmental liability are not um, excused, um, you know, through a bankruptcy. Uh, uh, Indeed, bankruptcy um, can be viewed as an acceleration of those liabilities, at least in the sense that it causes uh, potentially intense focus on them. you know, therefore, a purchaser uh, you know, must be concerned with the uh, the cost of compliance uh, with environmental laws uh, whenever buying a piece of property from uh, uh, whether it's an uh, individual piece of property or a business uh, in a uh, from a bankruptcy estate. Uh, you know, when it comes to a contaminated piece of real estate itself, uh, the most common kind of sale, um, you know, the uh, <clears throat> you know, two fundamental concerns: you know, the nature, extent, and status of the regulatory obligation. Uh, and whether the site's been adequately characterized or investigated. Um, you know, these really are the questions of, you know, has there been a remedy selected for the site uh, and has enough investigation as to the nature and extent of the contamination been done uh, so that um, uh, compliance uh, obligation can be adequately costed and discounted in the purchase price. Um, this leads to a number of subsidiary inquiries, such as, you know, changes in the actual use of the property and timing uh, of any cleanup work uh, what this all boils down to is that there's really no substitute for doing, you know, real and thorough diligence um, since the purchaser is going to be responsible for compliance. Uh, Any a purchaser is going to want to uh, estimate uh, the expected values for remedial expenses using ASPM's uh, Standard Guide for Estimating Environmental Liabilities, uh, and purchaser's counsel should understand the importance of, of uh, doing a credible cost estimation job uh, using these standards. In Tronox, which we'll talk more about later, uh, the court specifically noted uh, that uh, no uh, investigation or costing of environmental uh, obligations was done uh, before, the, uh, before the bankruptcy litigation commenced. Uh, and uh, moreover, it excoriated the, uh, the defendant's experts for a um, arrest for job uh, in doing so. And I think uh you, know,
0: you really have to understand as well a,
1: a point that the Tronox court from Home, uh that uh, uh reserves set aside uh for uh, compliance with financial accounting rules, um actually bear a little relationship to uh to real actual compliance or cleanup costs. So all of those have to be taken into consideration uh for a purchaser buys a piece of contaminated real estate uh, in a uh, in a three hundred sixty three sale.
0: Certainly very complex set of issues to consider. Let's turn our thoughts a little bit to some of the other uh, potentially uh, affected stakeholders uh, in, the, uh, in the case. So one question is looking at Freedom's other creditors, their security and their unsecured creditors, do you think they'll be better off or worse off or not affected by the fact that Freedom filed bankruptcy? How, how does that play for them?
1: Well, so it's um, still a little bit difficult to know since we're so early in the case, um, but it, it would appear that the creditors um, are probably better off in the bankruptcy for a couple of reasons. Uh, first off, prepetition petition fines and penalties are generally dischargeable uh, claims unless share with other um, uh, general unsecured creditors uh, instead of getting paid first as they typically would outside of the bankruptcy. Um, the automatic stay um, uh, does suspend the, uh, the bleeding of the, uh, the debtor's uh, resources to defend and pay judgments uh, on third-party claims. Uh, and claims against the debtor are likely to be resolved uh, more expeditiously and, in many cases, lower amounts uh, than would prevail outside of bankruptcy. There are obviously in bankruptcy a number of tools that could be used uh, to, uh, uh, to adjust claims uh, you know, more quickly, uh, and those uh, can be a real benefit to all parties involved.
0: What about the uh, secured creditors? Are they at risk of uh, losing the, the priority uh, in their collateral, or do you think they're largely safe? What, what sort of risk factors are they looking at, Jim?
1: Uh, you know, it seems that uh, freedom secured creditors stand be the best chance of realizing on their obligations, um, you know, as they would outside bankruptcy. You know, subject to you know, possible uh, claims and remedies in the bankruptcy, including equitable subordination you know, re-characterization of debt as equity and um, possible substance consolidation. Um, of course, for secured creditors to recover on their positions, the debtor has to have the resources uh, to pay them. Uh, and the bankruptcy cases in which uh, secured creditors are uh, fully paid are, are certainly not uncommon at all. Uh, and of course, there are some cases out there uh, that suggest that debtors... Um, may have to spend substantial resources to comply with environmental laws, um, but in the vast bulk of cases, the priorities established outside of the bankruptcy will control. Um, or surcharging collateral, which is a, a typical way uh, in which uh, a cash collateral belonging to a secured creditors would be reached, are pretty rare.
0: Let's, let's look the other way and see who else might be liable uh, for cleaning up this spill. And we have prior owners we have the parent company of freedom we have insurers there are a number of possible targets here could you sort of walk us through the potential recovery from any of these other parties and if so how might freedoms uh, bankruptcy estate be able to actually recover something from them
1: uh, that's a uh, very interesting question and I'll try to do the uh, uh, subject uh, pardon expression justice very short um, answer uh, but I um, all those parties potentially subject to liability depending upon their degree of responsibility uh, or, in the case of the insurance companies, uh, the coverage of their policies. Um, the chemicals manufacturer, uh, the, manufacturer of the CHM, um, could possibly be subject to uh, uh, liability or failure to warn products liability claim as well. Uh, in its bankruptcy filings, uh, Freedom Industries uh, points to a pipe uh, running through the property that was um, operated by a third-party that um, uh, froze and apparently upwell during a, a recent uh, hard freeze. Yeah, although you do have to wonder at the uh, the integrity of the tank if it could be so easily punctured. Um, yeah, it appears that Freedom's lawyers may later later try to claim that the spill was the, uh, the fault of third parties or an act of God, uh, which uh, may well be a defense uh, under uh, the Clean Water Act and other applicable statutes. Um, the water company itself. Uh, West Virginia American Water Company uh, could be brought in as a defendant.
0: What would be the basis of their liability? Uh,
1: it would be the uh, uh, supplying of the, uh, the actual contaminated water, uh, actual contaminated water it. through his pipes. Um, you have to wonder whether the West Virginia Department of Vital Protection uh, could have some liability here, although that seems to be a stretch. Prior owners could be subject to, to liability for failing to maintain a facility in accordance with regulatory standards. Uh, Freedom's parent company, uh, and potentially uh, directors, officers, and employees might be liable if the case be made in the traditional state um, law of piercing pursing or alter ego theories uh, or under the Supreme Court's uh, best decision. Um, insurers could potentially be responsible if, if uh, so-called absolute pollution exclusions uh, and their policies don't bar coverage. Uh, and, uh, of course, all of this is overlaid by... Uh, jurisdictional considerations so arising from the Supreme Court's recent decision in Stern versus Marshall,
0: which we'll
1: right. talk more about later. Right. Uh, so, whether this happens in the district court um, or whether it happens um, uh, through withdrawal of the reference or otherwise uh, or in some other form uh, in actions brought by the debtor or by third parties uh, is uh, still up in the air. Well,
0: that's really interesting, Jim. And- as you're talking about all of the different possible targets and ways that may brought in, may be brought in, I it made me think of you know Harry Truman who famously pointed out that the buck stopped with him. Well, that makes me think. Okay, a case like Freedom Industries, someone has to pay for this mess. Someone has to pay to clean up. I mean, obviously we're not just going to leave the water fouled. So, where will the buck stop? I mean, given this bankruptcy filing. Who do you think is most likely to ultimately bear the burden of cleaning up and paying for this nightmare?
1: Uh, well, you certainly do know how to ask difficult questions.
0: That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: the, the joys of the law school Um And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a tough one to answer, it really is. Uh, it depends upon you know, the nature and the amount of damages uh, involved. Um, Unfortunately, the, the ultimate buck uh, uh, may stop with the taxpayers uh, for the remedial costs—the costs uh, the cost of uh, flushing the lines, the costs of cleaning the, uh, um, uh, the groundwater and the site uh, from which they uh, they spilled. Uh, if uh, Freedom does not have the resources, or resources cannot be found um, through TAP, some of the uh, the other uh, potential defendants that we talked about just a minute ago, uh, and of course um, third-party claimants. Um, uh, you know, may not be able to cover the uh, recover the, the full amount of their claims uh, It's because of the nature of their, their claims, general unsecured claims, and the uh, and the bankruptcy process.
0: And Jim, I think it's is probably worth pointing out that the what you're just describing that this might end up being borne by the taxpayer really has nothing to do with the bankruptcy function. There's nothing about the bankruptcy laws that's causing this to happen, which I think is sort of lurking in the national outrage over this. It's a function of limited liability. It's a function of economic reality that debtors have limited assets. And when those assets are gone, they're gone, no matter how horrible the uh, mess that they've created or the damages they've caused. And so it's a very sad thing, but it's something we have to realize. Well, let's turn to sort of a an overarching problem uh, that, that has afflicted the environmental cases for decades. Uh, and the courts are still sort of going back and forth uh, on this question, although I think a trend is developing, which is the extent to which the government's environmental protection agencies have a, quote, claim, close quote, in the bankruptcy case which is subject to being discharged. I mean, this, of course, dates back to the uh, early Ohio versus Kovacs case, which was quite notorious in its time. Uh, Currently, uh, very perhaps one of the best known recent examples of the prevailing trend saying, no, there's no claim, uh, is, of course, the Seventh Circuit's 2009 decision in the Apex oil case. To start with, Jim, why does it matter whether the government has a claim or not, and in thinking about that, does it make a difference whether the debtor is liquidating or reorganizing?
1: And it, uh, uh, yeah, I think the uh, the short answer is uh, it does very much uh, make a difference um, whether the government has a claim, quote unquote, within the meaning uh, of the bankruptcy code uh, or not. Uh, and I wanted to go back just uh, very briefly and say I, I agree wholeheartedly with your. Uh, with your thesis, uh, as uh, you stated, as both of us stated earlier, actually, uh, that the uh, issue here is not the use of the bankruptcy code, but rather the uh, the, the nature and extent of the debtor's resources. Uh, that really determines um, whether these issues can be fixed uh, and whether those who are injured uh, are uh, can receive. Um, uh, you know, recompense for their injuries, uh, and it, it is a very sad situation, uh, and one that hopefully the bankruptcy laws will actually help adjust in a fairer fashion uh, than would that might prevail outside of bankruptcy. Uh, and one of the issues, uh, one of the ways that um, uh, is being, um, uh, one of the theories is being brought forward to uh, to help deal with these issues uh, in the context of bankruptcy. Uh, Is as you mentioned, uh, is the determination of whether what the government seeks um, when it seeks uh, to cause a cleanup of contaminated property uh, is whether the government has a claim or not, Um, and a a claim uh, is uh, uh, is defined uh, by the bankruptcy code uh, in a uh, in section 1015a and b uh, and that uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, a debt is a, a right to payment, um, you know, whether it's a judgments, liquidated or unliquidated, contingent or fixed, uh, matured or unmatured, uh, and it's a uh, it also includes a right to an equitable remedy uh, if that gives rise uh, to um, if that breach um, gives rise to a, a right to payment, um, such as uh, in a in a mortgage foreclosure uh so the uh, uh, the government um, has been pursuing uh, the, uh, the theory the argument uh, that uh, cleanup obligations are not in fact uh, claims uh, in uh, in bankruptcy, not subject to discharge there uh, therefore in a, uh, a bankruptcy case uh, and uh, as you mentioned, the apex oil case is one of uh, the most recent decision uh, that highlighted uh, this issue uh, and their uh, better Filed um, a Chapter 11 case approximately uh, 20 years ago, uh, and it, um, uh, it reorganized uh, in breach of the bankruptcy laws. Um, effectively the, uh, the same company, uh, subject to a couple of corporate transactions uh, that uh, <coughs> that uh, conducted the uh, or that was responsible for the contamination. And here, it was a refinery uh, that was being operated um, in Illinois and. Uh, uh, there's several million gallons uh, of, um, of hydrocarbons, oil, and other substances um, escaped from the refinery and migrated underneath homes in the uh, in the local area, uh, contaminated groundwater, uh, and uh, uh, really was a significant. Um, a, significant to threat to the human health and the environment. Uh, the cleanup was expected to take 15 years and cost up to $150 million. Uh, the, uh, 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 as you mentioned, uh, uh, about 20 years after the, the bankruptcy itself, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency um, uh, started uh, pursuit again of Apex Oil Company, uh, the, uh, the reorganized debtor uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the cleanup costs. Uh, and the uh, uh, the court of appeal uh, in that case agreed with the uh, uh, with the, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, the U.S. Department of Protection Agency, uh, that in fact uh, the uh, uh, you know, what was sought, uh, the relief that the government sought in the case was not in fact a claim, uh, but uh, rather was um, uh, an injunctive um, uh, uh, obligation. Uh, on the basis of what the uh, the applicable statute that the government proceeded under
0: uh, required. Well, and and so the consequence you're saying, if you go with the no-claim route, is that the obligations that apex Oil would have had, they get the discharge in bankruptcy, but those obligations are not discharged. And what you're you're telling me is that the justification, the rationale for the Seventh Circuit and, and many other courts that have held this way is that they look specifically at the definition of claim and say is there a right to payment and then they turn and look at the environmental law in question the specific remedies you said that the government's seeking and ask well does that particular statutory remedy give the government in effect an option to seek money or simply to order the debtor to clean up if it's the latter then they say no claim but here's the question that then follows from that it seems that the government perhaps can essentially pick and choose which statutory remedy they want to pull out of the hat, which will then dictate whether they do or do not have a bankruptcy claim, which sort of sounds like the government's given the, uh, you know, heads I win, tails you lose uh, option, just depending on the circumstances, if they want to collect out of the bankruptcy distribution, then they have to pick something that gives them a claim, because only if you have a claim are you entitled to get paid in the bankruptcy. But if you want to do like an Apex Oil and come in 20 years later and say, hey Apex Oil, you guys go clean up, then they can select a non-payment sort of environmental remedy and simply direct the cleanup. Is, is, that, a, is that appear to be the way this is working out?
1: Well, there is certainly uh, an element of that uh, in this uh, this entire process. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a, as you mentioned, there's a huge difference in results. Uh, if it's a claim, uh, it's paid in uh, uh, bankruptcy dollars if they exist. Uh, if uh, uh, it's not a claim, then the remediation is done. It's a dollar for dollar obligation. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I guess it, uh, yeah, I think we have to. to Really look at this uh, in terms of um, you know what parties thought they were doing uh, and uh, what the statutes um, uh, say uh, in these circumstances. Uh, and certainly, uh, yeah, I think it could be argued that the, uh, <clears throat> probably a, a party's commercial expectation uh, some 20 years ago uh, when it chose between um, you know or when it chose its course in bankruptcy whether to reorganize or to liquidate, whether to do a 363 360 sale, was probably um, You'll probably find what happened here a bit surprising. Mm -hmm. It is important to review the the facts of Apex Oil. Uh, Apex Oil addresses the question of responsibility to clean up a huge plume of petroleum contamination migrating from an oil refinery. Cleanup of the plume was expected to take 15 years and cost $150 million dollars. Simplify a complicated set of corporate transactions. The refinery was constructed in 1940 and sold in 1967 to Apex Oil. In 1987, Apex filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection and sold the, fo- the refinery to a third party after getting bankruptcy court approval. Apex reorganized an emergent bankruptcy without owning the refinery any longer. Meanwhile, the petroleum hydrocarbons, at one point estimated to be as much as 10 million gallons, uh, that leaked from the refinery continued to migrate through the ground. Petroleum and fumes and vapors migrated beneath homes and businesses in the nearby village, causing a number of fires and explosions, as well as adverse health effects on residents, including respiratory irritation, lightheadedness, nausea, and worse. Uh, other potentially responsible parties performed certain environmental response uh, cleanup actions at the site, uh, but Apex refused, claiming a lack of responsibility based upon its prior bankruptcy. Uh, as in several uh, other recent cases, the government initially proceeded under the Superfund law formerly known as the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation and Liability Act, or CERCLA. The government then determined to amend its pleadings to seek an injunction under the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, or RICRA. Uh, in 2008, after, 20 years after the bankruptcy court approved sale of the refinery, and after a lengthy trial, the government obtained a junction uh, uh, against APEX under RICRA. The difference is crucial in, in bankruptcy. Under CERCLA, the government would have a claim, whereas under RICRA, RICRA the cause of action is not a claim. Um, It makes a significant difference whether the government has a claim. Um, The short answer is that if the obligation is a claim, a property dealt with by a plan is free and clear of claims under bankruptcy code section 1141C uh, and 1141D, any debt which is defined as liability on a claim that arose prior to plan confirmation is discharged. So if an obligation is a claim, it gets paid in bankruptcy dollars to the extent they exist. If it is not a claim, however, uh, it is a dollar-for-dollar dollar obligation of the reorganized debtor or a buyer. Uh, of course, if there is no bankruptcy and the property gets left um, uh, uh, behind in the bankruptcy estate, um, uh, <clears throat> it may be subject to limitations on a state uh, and any resulting trust resources. The government's success in APEX is due to the definition of claim under Bankruptcy Code Section uh, 101.5. Uh, the question of whether the injunctive remedy under RICRA imposing the cleanup obligation gives right to a rise, um, uh, or excuse me, a right to payment under Section 105. Uh, 1015. Under circular, the government can choose to either order the polluter to clean up the contamination uh, or to uh, clean up the contamination itself and sue the polluter for the cost of the previously performed cleanup. Under RICRA, the government has no such choice. RICRA's only remedy is an injunction to force the polluter to clean up the contamination. Therefore, the government, by careful selection of its remedy and careful pleading, can effectively um, itself determine whether the cleanup obligation uh, is or isn't to claim, and thus whether it survives a bankruptcy. Uh, you ask whether it seems unfair to revisit these obligations on APEX 20-plus years after its bankruptcy. I would say that pursuit of these obligations uh, now probably upset uh, commercial expectations at the time, and perhaps to the public and maybe even some practitioners today. However, the environmental statutes involved, particularly RICRA, Uh, are quite broad, and the liability imposed because the reorganized debtor to clean up the contamination it caused is well within Ricker's reach. I would also say, however, um, that on another level, the the result is not surprising, given the actual uh, wording of the statutes as well as the principles involved, namely that the polluter pay. The no-claim rule of apex furthers these goals. Uh, Why should a debtor be able to avoid dealing with a problem of its own making or stonewall a regulator uh, and do little, uh, and perhaps even uh, lift the environmental uh, obligation on its statement of financial affairs and provide a cursory notice to an environmental regulator or uh, another environmental creditor and then walk away from the problem. Uh, you also asked whether um, there is or should be a different result um, between liquidating and reorganizing. Uh, the defendant in APEX uh, made this point. Uh, if it had only known, it would have liquidated rather than uh, reorganized. Uh, such a liquidation strategy may be the preferred methodology in big cases going forward as opposed to reorganization Uh, this is tempered by a couple of other considerations if the property is valuable the debtor and his creditors will want it sold uh, net of any discount for environmental liabilities assumed and the buyer will inherit the compliance obligation if the property is bad real estate or underwater because of environmental liabilities the property could be left behind in the bankruptcy estate and possibly a resulting trust subject to any limits on resources that may prevail in that entity. The trend in large cases recently, where there are adequate resources, is to require judges to fully fund cleanup as a condition to being able to leave properties behind for a trust to ultimately clean up and sell. Uh, there are certainly issues with the government associated with the current system of pursuit of such cases. By pleading the correct statutory cause of action, the government does get to pick and choose which of its cases present claims and which do not. A number of these cases the government has initially proceeded under (coughs) CIRCLA, as we noted, and then amended its complaint (coughs) to drop the Superfund remedy in favor of RICRA. This does tend to violate standard understandings of what environmental statutes apply to what kinds of sites, um, with RICRA applying to sites uh, with ongoing permitted operations and CIRCLA to abandoned or formerly owned sites, uh, but not to the actual wording or reach of the statutes themselves. (coughs) Uh, To me, the implications are even broader. The non-claim strategy could threaten the fresh start objectives of the bankruptcy code by failing to take into account traditional distinctions of whether the debtor obligation arises pre-petition or post-confirmation. This would also, of course, upset the priority rules that usually apply in bankruptcy. To give but one example, uh, it seems that a neighboring property owner or prior owner in whose favor uh, a contractual indemnity runs uh, who would have a dischargeable claim uh, could bring a rigorous citizen suit, uh, thereby getting more than it would otherwise be entitled. Of course, such a result and the current non-claim strategy does maintain the polluter pays principle of environmental laws in this age of limited government resources. Uh, the wisdom of the strategy clearly depends upon your perspective.
0: Well, you know, Jim, I think it's interesting. One of the one of the problems I think that's lurking uh, right beneath the surface here uh, is that neither the bankruptcy laws nor the environmental laws with regard to this specific issue were really drafted specifically with the other one in mind. Certainly there are some provisions in the bankruptcy law that were, if you look at the legislative history, avowedly took into account the environmental statutes. But we we do have, as you said, the environmental policies of, you know, making the the responsible party pay. But we also have the bankruptcy issues of fairly and equitably distributing loss amongst a bunch of innocent parties. And it it perhaps might be worth Congress thinking through a unified strategy for how to deal with this. Well, let's turn to uh, another sort of problem that's come up, uh, and it's highlighted by the Tronox uh, case. Very interesting set of facts in that case. What perhaps might have happened if one were inclined perhaps to lean more toward the cynical side of the street is that Kerr McGee uh, spun off a big chunk of what they may have seen as its sort of looming environmental nightmares uh, into this new company called Tronox. Tronox then, not long thereafter, goes into bankruptcy, has now exited Chapter 11, and it's plan, essentially, is to create a litigation trust that's suing Kerr-McGee for having done this. Could you walk us through sort of what Kerr-McGee did and and sort of talk about this strategy of the, what maybe you can just call it the spin-off the polluted sites strategy. Does that work? I mean, how does that play out?
1: Yes, it's a... Uh it's an interesting uh strategy uh and one that uh i think depending upon uh, how well it's done and whether uh, all of the appropriate um corporate law considerations uh, are taken into account um may actually uh have uh, have some legs uh it was certainly um uh, certainly some significant questions about uh how well and with what intent uh, it was done uh, in the tronox matter uh in tronox uh, for those who uh, have not followed this um, closely, uh, is the uh, the new name of the old uh, Kermagee uh, Corporation. Uh, Kermagee was originally incorporated back in 1929. Uh, it started out uh, in the oil and gas exploration business then got into refining um, retail gas station operations, uh, and from there um, into uranium mining and milling, wood-treating plants, um, uh, the manufacture of rocket fuel, uh, the manufacture of um, radioactive elements, uh, and then uh, to uh, paint dyes, um, titanium dioxide. Uh, by the, mid to, the mid-2000s, um, it became pretty clear that um, you know, these other businesses uh, were not profitable and Kermakee, uh had terminated all of these uh, businesses except for the, uh, the oil and gas exploration. And the uh, uh, titanium dioxide business, uh, and the result of this legacy of you know 75, 80 years of operations of um, such um, heavy industries uh, was significant. Uh, it was uh, responsible for, has been alleged to be responsible for some 2,700 environmental sites in 47 states, including a number of Superfund sites. Uh, it incurred more than a billion dollars in response costs. Um, Uh, and was spending more than $160 million annually on remediation. it had a staff of 40 dedicated to that kind of remediation, uh, and it was also uh, faced with significant third-party tort claims uh, from the creosote uh, wood treating business uh, over the course of time. Uh, And all of this uh, really resulted in uh, uh, in Kermigiti's not being uh, an appropriate uh, acquisition target uh, one of the uh, of its acquisition um, uh, partners merger partners uh, rejected uh, that um, uh, the potential for a, uh, a merger um, uh, on the grounds they had a thousand plus sites of the annual cost um, actually ate up its uh, free cash flow and billions more in and site, uh, and possibly 30 years of facilities. So apparently what uh, Kermigee did uh, was formulate uh, a, uh, a scheme uh, to spin off uh, the uh, uh, the profitable uh, ENP, the oil and gas exploration and production assets uh, into uh, a, a separate company. Uh, and to, uh, to simplify here, to force uh, old Kermigy, uh renamed Tronox, Right. Uh, to assume all of the environmental uh, and a number of employment related liabilities uh, of the uh, of the business so that the uh, uh, you know, of all the businesses uh, of the, the uh, uh, leaving the uh, uh, the new uh, EFP uh, company
0: uh, with only
1: the responsibility for current uh, operations uh, so a, a significant um Shift of responsibilities uh, from uh, even the businesses and the corporations originally responsible for them onto old Permagate, and uh, this was this was done. uh, And uh, uh, very shortly after uh, this was completed, um, there was an an IPO, an initial public offering of Tronox stock, uh, and this was uh, controlled by uh, the uh, the new uh, the new company uh, leaving the uh, uh, leaving Tronos itself uh, with um, relatively paltry resources uh, to uh, uh, to deal with the issues. Uh, the, uh, uh, not uh, very long after a couple of years, uh, uh approximately three years after the, uh, the spinoff of Kerr-McKee, uh, it filed Chapter 11, uh, and uh, the uh, <coughs> uh, a uh, very shortly thereafter. Uh, complaint uh, was filed, uh, not just by uh, the, uh, uh, the Tronox, uh, the old Kermit-y, uh but also by uh, the, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, hmm. claiming that uh, the uh, uh, the transactions were actually a series of fraudulent uh, transfers uh, under uh, under state law, uh, and uh, after. Um, uh, a, a lengthy motion practice, as well as a, a trial, 30, 35 days almost uh, of trial. Uh, the court found that in fact, uh, fraudulent transfers uh, were involved, uh, both actual um, fraudulent transfers, um, uh, in the sense that uh, the uh, the transactions or the series of transactions uh, were part of a scheme uh, to hinder or delay creditors. Uh, and further found constructive uh, fraudulent transfers um, on the grounds that the, uh, uh, the transactions uh, were ones that uh, left the uh, the debtor with unreasonably small capital uh, and the uh, inability to service uh, its debts uh, as they became due. Uh, at the end of the day, Kermiki uh, or Tronox, I should say, um, uh, was found to have uh, uh, assets of uh, 1.2 billion uh, and liabilities of uh, uh, of uh, 2.1 billion, so underwater uh, to the tune of almost 850 million dollars. Um, very, uh, um, uh, yeah, it seems like a, uh, a, a shocking result uh, in uh, uh, in the side kind of the kind of the case.
0: So, Jim, what what's the uh given the fraudulent transfer finding, what's the remedy? I mean, two questions. What's the remedy that can happen? But then secondly, you'd said, perhaps a company could structure a spinoff strategy like this to work. So after you talk about the potential liability uh, for having effected this fraudulent transfer, could you then maybe opine about how a company could set it up and escape a fraudulent transfer finding?
1: Uh, certainly, my best. Um, you know, when it comes to you know the remedies under uh, this kind of circumstance, um, you know, decision uh, is uh, is always a possibility. Uh, in this case, um, more likely, uh, remedy uh, would be a damage remedy, uh, and this is one actually where the uh, the court uh, in Tronox um, uh, was unable to resolve the issue uh, without further briefing from the parties. Uh, a very wide range of uh, potential. Um, uh, verdicts, uh, excuse me, potential um, uh, ranges of damages uh, and uh, are determined to uh, consider the, uh, the matter further. Uh, as to, you know, how can you ever successfully spin off uh, environmental liabilities uh, so that uh, they don't uh, form uh, the, uh, subject to fraudulent conveyance attack? Uh, and I think the answer is yes. I and mean, it obviously uh, is. Uh, Something that uh, needs to be done uh, appropriately uh, under the circumstances, uh, and I think the uh, uh, for practitioners you want uh, a uh, uh, you know a primer on, uh, on how it can be done appropriately, I think one case that um, the uh, uh, you may want to look to is the Lippi versus Baranko case of a few years back, uh, and this is one uh, in which the uh, the debtor, uh, I should say the uh, um, uh, the defendant uh, in this case, uh, that was subject to uh, uh, to attack, um, had actually um, <coughs> uh, uh, successfully uh, restructured itself, uh, and uh, uh, it, uh, <coughs> the fraudulent attack, uh, fraudulent conveyance attacks failed um, because, uh, first off, there was no evidence uh, that um, you know, fair, or substantial value um, for the assets uh, wasn't realized. Uh, and uh, there was no uh, intent uh, to uh, uh, to hinder, or delay, or defraud, proved. Uh, and uh, <coughs> uh, the uh, uh, the defendant in that case uh, was actually one that uh, sought and received um, uh, appropriate um, uh, and uh, 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 appropriate valuations, uh, so that the value that it left behind. Uh, and this is the key here: the value that it left behind uh, to service uh, the potential uh, uh, environmental liabilities, in this case asbestos liabilities, uh, was appropriate uh, in light of the potential size of those liabilities. Uh, so, is that? Um, uh, yeah, that is a, that's outside the, the bankruptcy context. Uh, you know, in the uh, in the bankruptcy context itself, uh, you know, there's is uh, obvious is one obvious way. Uh, to value the assets uh, that uh, are being sold uh, out of a case uh, and uh, you know, well, presumes that the uh, uh, the assets that are uh, you know, uncontaminated or less contaminated uh, would be sold out of bankruptcy case um, out of a debtors estate uh, to a uh, uh, to a purchaser um, and that's to uh, to receive uh, fair value for those uh, for those assets uh, and that um, uh, can uh, most definitely be done um, by means of a, a properly conducted 363 sale uh, in which um, appropriate bidding procedures uh, are, uh, uh, you know, are put in place uh, and uh, appropriate and sufficient advertising um, and notification um, solicitation of, uh, of bids is received. Uh, that will establish uh, the, uh, the market value of the, uh, the assets uh, involved. Uh, so it, it is possible, uh, if done appropriately, but has to be done um, uh, with, the, uh, with the view in mind to um, providing sufficient assets to service the potential liabilities remaining uh, with the debtor.
0: That's, that's very interesting, Jim. I appreciate that, that analysis. One, one thing you mentioned earlier, and uh, just a, a couple thoughts uh, left uh, in our time. Uh, one, you mentioned the, the question of Which judicial official is going to get to sort this all out? And, of course, we're now living in the uh, curious and uncomfortable post-Stern v. Marshall world, and we're not entirely sure at this point how much exactly a bankruptcy judge herself can decide these sorts of issues. With regard to the various environmental questions that come up, what are your thoughts about how Stern v. Marshall plays here?
1: Uh, Stern v. Marshall certainly uh, complicates uh, the resolution of environmental liabilities uh, because, um, t- in a case such as Freedom uh, and many others, the question of who is ultimately responsible uh, for the uh, uh, the contamination uh, involved, uh, you know, can be quite uh, quite vexing. Uh, <coughs> and Stern um, uh, yeah, uh, seems to indicate uh, that. Uh, uh, at least, where uh, a party uh, does not file a claim uh, against the uh, the debtor's estate, uh, that uh, bankruptcy court uh, may not have jurisdiction to uh, uh, to handle and decide um, uh, the uh, uh, debtor's actions against it uh, to, uh, to fix a uh, portion of the liability on that uh, that non-debtor party. Uh, so. Uh, uh, and obviously, there's a uh, uh, you know a, a real question here uh, in terms of, uh, of of what constitutes uh, consent uh, by right. a, you know, a non-party uh, to the bankruptcy court jurisdiction here. Uh, whether it's affirmatively required, whether be, uh, the filing of a claim against the debtor does it, uh, whether that um, can be uh, uh, you know, that consent can be inferred by failure to timely object all those things have to be brought into it. I we may
0: find more about that in the uh, Bellingham case, uh, perhaps the, the nature of the consent uh, that would be available. And of course, we also have potential uh, mandatory withdrawal of the reference issues that, that could arise uh, with regard to the uh, environmental uh, claims as well, uh, which is a further potential problem. But, um, so final question uh, in terms of uh, sort of thinking this, and I'll, I'll give you a, a chance to uh, to think big here. Let's say, Jim, that you were appointed by President Obama uh, to lead a task force uh, investigating uh, the problem of re- reconciling, making sense of the impact of the environmental laws in the bankruptcy setting. If, if you had that uh, daunting uh, task, what would be the most important advice and recommendations you think you would make? And I'm, I'm, of course, making you say this without having had the opportunity to actually engage in that study. But having been involved in uh, for for several decades uh, in sorting out environmental problems, I think you're better qualified than just about anyone to opine uh, on those questions. So what do you think?
1: Uh, uh, you, you really do know how to ask those tough questions. Uh,
0: <laughs> I applaud you for it. I,
1: and, uh, uh, you know, this is, um, uh, you know, I'll still uh, look forward to that uh, invitation by uh, Congress or the White House to, uh, uh, to opine on those things, um, although the prospect of appearing before a committee or something is, is not exactly uh, one that, uh, that thrills me. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <really that laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it really, um, there are really a couple of considerations you have to take into, into account here. Uh, and it's really what what principles uh, do we want to uphold here? And, and they seem to be uh, at odds, a couple of them that are potentially uh, involved. Uh, and I can envision a system that um, is either more evidence-based or, and I, I use that in quotation marks because it's gotten a lot of uh, uh, a lot of press here in the past several years or result oriented, Also a um, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps a, a phrase that's too laden uh, with uh, with meanings. Uh, by evidence-based, you know, what I mean is one um, uh, in which the central environmental uh, responsibilities of the debtor and others uh, are really based upon you know, scientific uh, and technical testimony in each case, um, yeah, how much um, <coughs> testimony regarding the amounts spilled, um, the kind of chemical it was, its characteristics, uh, the uh, geology and other characteristics of um, the uh, uh, you know the soil or other medium which is contaminated um, how um, how you remediate a particular chemical involved uh, and uh, and so forth um, and this is a, this could be a very daunting um, technical task the uh, uh, the uh case of um, you know the, the early 1990s uh, seems to recognize the difficulty of this um, and, and when it, um, says that essentially uh you know uh, migration um, contamin- further contamination uh, essentially occurs uh, in a great many cases uh, over the course of time and obviously that depends upon the kind of contamination uh, and mm-hmm. the kind of the spill we're talking about it doesn't happen in every case but for a great many land contamination cases it certainly does um, uh, by uh, you know, result oriented uh, you know I think uh, you know what I mean there is one that's a little more predictable in terms of um, uh, Results um, uh, and uh, you know, in that uh, in that kind of uh, scenario, uh, you know, when the government chooses a theory, it chooses to proceed um, under a statute that, uh, for example, does not have a monetary remedy, uh, as uh, Rick yeah. um, uh does not. Uh, then uh, you essentially know what the are. Um, it is going to be uh, when the government chooses that um, that remedy. Uh, you know that kind of um, uh, that kind of uh, system. You know definitely preserves the polluter pays pay principle. Uh, you know again in times of, of limited public resources, uh, and it shifts to those who are better able to pay uh, or uh, you know reorganized debtors who arguably uh, always had, will uh, continue to have that uh, that obligation. Um, so, you know, I asked myself in thinking about that, you know, would an evidence-based system uh, be any better and lead to more certainty or, or fairness in results? Um, you know, and uh, the 30 years uh, in the environmental business, um, uh, you know, has certainly driven uh, home uh, to me, you know, one, um, uh, you know, one issue, one principle, and that is that, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, environmental issues, um, you know, you, you very may very well not know the results until you're done, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of with whatever the remediation uh, or issue is. Uh, so, you know, you, uh, uh, by choosing, um, you know, a more uh, scientifically-based uh, or um, perhaps a, a system that takes into account uh, some of the uh, uh, traditional um, considerations that play into those in a bankruptcy case, um, you know, when the contamination occurred, uh, and um, it was pre or post uh, petition, uh, and uh, and so forth. When the cause of action arose, all those things, uh, you know, does it lead to a fairer or a more certain result. Uh, I'm not quite sure how I come out on that yet.
0: So you've certainly framed the the issue uh, as well uh, as it can be framed, I think. And Jim, I, I know I I speak for the ABI and for all of our listeners uh, in thanking you, uh, Jim Redwine, our guest today. Uh, we very much appreciate his uh, very uh, insightful and enlightened views uh, and thoughts on this enormous problem of uh, environmental uh, liabilities uh, in, in bankruptcy cases. Uh, the Freedom Industries uh, case uh, has reminded us yet again uh, of what a daunting uh, problem this is. Uh, and we're most grateful to you, Jim, for, for the insights you've shared with us today.
1: Well, uh, Thank you very much for the opportunity, uh, Professor, and uh, to the ABI uh, for the opportunity to discuss them. They are very uh, challenging uh, and important topics that we all have to keep in mind as we practice in this area. So thank you very much again.
0: Thank you, Jim. Thank you for listening to today's program, and be sure to join us again for another edition of ABI Podcast.